Hi, I'm Marty McKenzie with His Love Ministries. Welcome to the Least of These Podcasts. We reach out to those the world has forgotten. If you'd like to know more about us and how you can donate to help us fulfill our mission, go to hisloveministries.net. Thank you very much and God bless you. Praise Him, praise Him. Ever in joyful song. Well, we're back in Romans chapter 9. And uh, like I said, Miss Betty said last week that she read this. And uh, it's a difficult section. And I'm going to try not to make it too complicated. Not try not to get into too many details. But unfortunately, to understand that we have to go into some details, maybe a little bit more than we like to sometimes but sometimes to understand scripture you have to really dig a little bit remember the whole book of Romans is about the fact that there's a righteousness that comes from faith through Jesus Christ right there's a righteousness from God that comes through faith to all who believe the first three chapters really tell us that we're condemned which is the bad news and then chapter four begins to tell us how to be saved and four through six talk about salvation and then uh, six through eight really talk about how to become more like Christ that's what we call sanctification and then chapters nine through eleven are really the national section talk about Israel's election rejection and their restoration and then chapters 12 through 16 talk about the fact that This is how you live in light of everything that's been done and said. So Paul goes 11 chapters and then he says, Therefore, based on everything I just got through telling you, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So that's what he tells us. He says, based on everything I said, and he begins to tell us, that's what we call the practical section. And it tells us how to live in light of everything we know. So as we've been looking at this section, last time we were here, we talked about Paul and how Paul loves to fellow Israelites. He says, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. And he calls on Christ as his witness. He calls on his conscience as a witness. And he also calls on the Holy Spirit as his witness. And he says that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. And he says, I could wish that I myself were cursed for my countrymen, my brethren, according to the flesh. And what does he say? He said, you know, if it were possible, I would go to hell for my countrymen, for my fellow Israelites, because I love them so much. And we talked about how Moses said that, you know, God blocked me out of your book and saved these people, even though God says, I'll make a great nation out of you. And so Paul has this great heart in Philippians. He says that I would stay out of heaven for y'all. He says, I'm caught between a rock and a hard spot. Basically, he says, whether to go in heaven, to heaven and be with Christ, which is far better to stay here with you. But I know that I shall remain because there's something to be done in your lives. And so Paul would stay out of heaven for the Philippians and he would go to hell for his countrymen. So let's look at verses 4 and 5, and there's a lot in these, just these two verses, and we'll see how far we get there. 
because really what Paul begins to do is he lists the privileges of the Israelites and like I said even though there's only two verses here there's a lot of stuff in here and I'll try not to get too deep with it but like I said there's some things we need to understand if we want to understand this passage and I'm just going to read verses 4 and 5 and We'll see how far we get. And I want to back up to verse 3. It says, For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who was over all, eternally blessed God. Amen. He begins to list all these privileges and he talks about how these Israelites, these are the people that God chose and, and he begins to list who, what they are and he says they're first of all the Israelites, right? Remember when God took uh, Jacob and his name was Deceiver, right? And he changed his name that night when he wrestled with God and he changed his name to Israel which I believe means peace with God. But he changed his name that night because he, he strove with God and, and God put his thigh out of joint and, and he says, I will not let thee go until I see, see you. And you bless me, right? And that's a man who struggled and strived with God. And so they are called the Israelites. Those are God's chosen people. And at this point, it became the name for all the Jews, right? Now, here's some of the privileges that they have. He says, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption? When you notice these things, what he says here, to whom pertain? And then it says, all of these things belong to them. It's not to whom did pertain or did belong, but it says to whom already does belong. He says, the adoptions as sons. And remember over in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God tells Moses, he says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. He adopted them as his son, his children. And this is really the only place in the New Testament where the term adoption is used of Israel. Normally it's used of what? Believers in Christ, right? That we're adopted as children. And remember, it talks about our new status as children of God. And it talks about the fact that, guess what? That, that God, we belong to God. He adopted us, right? And I don't know if you remember the deal with adoption when we talked about that a while back. But remember, in the Roman culture, the father, he was basically, his word was law. He could kill his wife. He could kill his children. He could basically do anything he wanted to. And what they would do is if they didn't find a, one of their children wasn't good enough or they didn't think they measured up to the standard that they had for what they accomplished and what they wanted their children to do. Well, I'm doing this and I'm running this business or I've got this and I want you to take over. And if their child didn't measure up, they'd go out and adopt another child and they would put that child in place of his natural born children and that child would take over the business or whatever it was. But the adopted child, they had way more privileges than the children who were the natural children because the natural children, guess what? 
They could be killed by the father if he wanted to kill them. But you know what? This adopted child, he could disown them. He could say, you're not my child anymore. He could do anything he wanted to with them. But once this child was adopted, remember it took like seven witnesses. It took all this big rigmarole. I guess maybe that's where we got the rigmarole today for adoption. It's just so, so difficult for people who want to adopt a child. But once it was adopted, that child was adopted, guess what? That father could never disown that child. He could never kill that child. He could never do any of those things that he could do to his natural child. Forever that child was his. As versus what the, the natural children were. And that's one of the reasons God uses the term adoption. Remember God uses the terms of the time to show us. He uses cultural truths to show us spiritual truths, right? And Paul uses all these cultural truths like Remember the Romans were always, you know, that's where we got the Olympic Games and all these things. And he says, well, I run in the race and I beat my body into subjection. And he uses all these sayings because the people of the culture would explain them, would understand them, right? Remember Jesus did the same thing, right? He, he used all these illustrations from the culture and he used illustrations so people would understand what he's talking about. And that's what he did here in Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8 says... The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people for you were the least of all peoples but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath that he swore to his, your fathers the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh the king of Egypt. And so Paul's major term for salvation was the word adoption. He said we've been adopted as sons. While Peter and John, they always used the term born again, right? Like I said, this is a Roman figure of speech. Like I said, this, this new person, this person became a new person. And that's what we become when we become a child of the king, right? When we become saved, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians five seventeen, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things are passed away. All things have become new. And that's what happened when this child was adopted. They became a totally brand new person. Everything that was in the past was gone. They were now the, the child of this new father. And whatever he had belonged to them. They had full rights, full privileges. And like I said, even more privileges than the natural children. And then he says, to whom pertain the adoption? Like I said, this, it doesn't say to whose used to be the adoption, the glory and all these things. But it says... This does belong to them now. For those people out there, and I don't know if you know, there's a group of people out there that says God's through with Israel. But the Bible says that if God, God will not keep his promises, if we could remove all the stars from the sky, if we could remove all the Jewish people, and I believe that's one reason the devil's tried to kill all the Jewish people is because he's tried to stop God's promises. And so the second thing that he talks about here is the glory. Now, remember the glory. This word glory means to be heavy or valuable. And remember God showed up to Moses on Mount Sinai and he revealed himself in what was called the Shekinah cloud. Remember when they left Israel, what happened? I mean, Egypt, what happened? There was a cloud that followed them by day and there was a fire by night, right? And scholars believe that that cloud 
I've never been out in the desert, but I've read a lot of stories about how bad it is that if if you don't have some mode of transportation, you can't find water, you're going to die, right? And it's so hot, it's so horrible. But they believe that God put that cloud over them by day to protect them, to stop some of that heat, to protect them from that horrible heat and everything. And then at night, you know, that same desert that's horribly hot at and during the daytime, just unbelievably hot. At night, can be freezing cold, right? That's what's hard to believe. And at night, he would provide that fire by night. Then that would probably provide some warmth and comfort. And that was what was called the Shekinah glory. And it followed them the whole 40 years that they were in the wilderness, right? And remember, his, it was also in the temple. It was there in the temple remember when the people refused God and the glory departed it rested over the ark and so all of these things were there this glory was there to prove that basically God loved these people and he cared for them and a, guy, a scholar named John Murray wrote the glory was the sign of God's presence with Israel and certified to Israel that God dwelt among them and met with them I remember my wife and I were talking one day about the, she was talking about how the people were on the mountain when Moses was on the mountain and the cloud descended on the mountain and and that glory and it was thundering and lightning. That was God's glory too, but they were scared of him at that time, right? And they said, no, you speak to God. We will stay over here. You speak to him for us because we're afraid of him. It was a comforting presence but it also could be a scary thing when people were sinful and they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. The third thing is, and this is probably where I'm gonna spend a fair amount of time because we need to really understand the covenant. So we have the adoption as sons. They are adopted as sons. They had the glory, the visible presence of God, the fire by day and the fire by night and the cloud by day to protect them and guide them. And then there's the covenants. And really a covenant that, you know, really this is what we have. This is the Old Testament, the New Testament, right? This is what we call the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. Or you could also call it the Old Will and the New Will, right? Because when Hebrews gets to, when the book writer of Hebrews writes, I think it's chapter 9 or something, he says unless there's the death of a testator, the person who wrote the will, then, then the will cannot go in effect, right? So once Jesus died, the new will, the new covenant, the New Testament went into effect. And so let's talk about that a little bit so we can get some understanding. And hopefully I won't lose y'all, but a covenant is defined as promises, agreements, a contract, a bond, a pledge, a treaty, those kind of things, right? The covenant is the means by which the one true God deals with his human creation. And it's crucial to understanding our Bible. It really is. So there's two types of covenants. The two types of covenant in the Bible are conditional and unconditional. And it's very important to understand the difference between these two covenants and to understand what the Bible teaches us. So first of all, there's the conditional covenants. So that would basically be your Old Testament, a lot of it, right? And there's like five or six out of the eight are conditional 
covenants. But remember in the Old Testament, what did Jesus, what did God say to the to the people? He said, if you do this, if you do this, then I will do this, right? If you do right, I will bless you. If you do wrong, I will curse you, right? And in a conditional covenant is based on two people. And it's based on if I'll do this and you're supposed to do that, right? And that's what God told the people in the Old Testament is I'm going to do this and I'm going to bless you, but you need to do this to get those blessings, right? And that's what we call a conditional covenant. So they would either get blessings by obedience or cursings, right? But notice, you remember in the whole Old Testament, what happens through most of the Old Testament. The people go into slavery. The people are in trouble. They're always having problems. Why? Because they've sinned. You know, and they go into captivity. Jesus says whoever commits sin is a slave to sin, right? And because we have sinned, that people go into slavery. That's why we have so many people locked up in the jails and the prisons today. Because they have sinned and they've gone into captivity. Two of the eight covenants are conditional. I guess I got that backwards. But then the unconditional, there are unconditional covenants. And an unconditional covenant is basically a unilateral or a one-sided covenant. And basically it's a sovereign act of God where he unconditionally obligates himself to bring certain blessings and conditions for the people he makes the promise to covenant with, right? And so here's the covenant formula for the unconditional formula. I will, and that declares God's determination to do as he promises. It is totally and completely dependent on God. You remember the one place where God, he, he tells Moses to cut the, Abram to cut the animals in half. And it says there's a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the two animals. And I don't know if you realize this, but in the Old Testament, they called it cutting a covenant. And what they would do was they would take, take an animal and they would cut that animal in half. And the two people would walk between the animals and walk around it and say, I'm going to do this. And if I don't do this, then guess what? You can cut me in half like you cut this animal in half. That's how serious it was. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't, it was like a handshake, but, but, you know, this is how serious it was. You know, there wasn't any fine print. If you didn't do what you said you would do, you would be cut in half like that animal. And remember, God tells Abram to put the animals out there, and he has a smoking oven and a burning torch, which is a symbol of himself. And in Hebrews, he says, God who promised by himself could swear by no greater. Remember, he made an oath by himself. And so what God did was he said he was going to do that. And some some unconditional covenants are the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Palestinian or the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and of course the new covenant. Here's some things that we want to understand about these unconditional covenants made with Israel. First, they are literal, actual promises, and they must be interpreted literally. In other words, we don't play any games with these things that God told Israel, right? He said, this is what I'm going to do, and he meant it, and he didn't mean anything else, right? 
But some people want to take the Bible and they say, well, this is literal and this is, what, what do you call it, allegory or whatever, and they want to make it into anything they want to. But one man said, when the Bible makes plain sense, why, make, why read any other sense into it, right? When it's simple, just read it as it is, right? And second, the covenants that God made with Israel are eternal and not in any way restricted or altered by time. In other words, when God promised, he said, I'll make these promises with you forever, right? They are eternal covenants. Thirdly, it's necessary to understand that these were not nullified or, or broken because of Israel's disobedience. Because they weren't dependent on anything Israel did. They were totally and completely dependent upon what God said he was going to do. You know, and that's the good news about what we have as Christians today. Is God promised that he was going to send his son. And if we put our trust in him because he died in our place and died for our sins. And we believe that and believe that that would get us to heaven. He said, you know what? I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And that's the thing about an unconditional covenant is God promised. And he doesn't lie, does he? Remember, we are the recipients of that. And then fourthly, these covenants were made with a specific people, Israel. And like I said, in verse 9, chapter 9, verse 4, he says, Who are the Israelites? To whom or whose are the adoption? Is some translation read. It says, whose are the adoption, the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God. So they are Israel's possession. And one of the last things that we want to talk about is, is remember over in Ephesians chapter 2, 11 and 12, Paul's speaking to the people over there, and he says, therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, he was talking about everybody that wasn't a Jew, right? He says, who are called the uncircumcision, by what is called a circumcision made in the flesh by hands. And at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So what did he say? That the people who were not his covenant people, that basically we were without hope at the time because we didn't have God, we didn't have the covenants, we didn't have the promises. And the only way we were going to be able to understand and get it is if we learned it from the people of God's people, right? Just like today. Where that's why we've been talking so much about we are God's people to tell others about what God's done for us. So there's a couple of other things that I want to talk about about the covenants. And then we'll just quit today because I don't want to go any further with this. But um, one of the things that also is part of it is there's a principle of the timing of the covenants a covenant can be signed sealed and made at a specific time and point in history but that doesn't mean that the covenant goes into effect immediately some of them go into effect right away some of them go into effect in the near future some may be 25 years or 500 years away and as we know based on what the Bible says, that some go only in the distant prophetic future, not having, be, having been fulfilled until this day. In other words, what does it say in Revelation? I think it's 12 verse 7, that they'll look on him whom they've pierced, right? And then all Israel will be saved. 
that's what the deal is, is one day God's going to fulfill that promise. Because you know what? God didn't move, the people moved. It's the same way with us today. That that we, as the people of God, if we know Christ is our Lord and Savior, we're truly saved. You know what? We don't move. The Bible says, draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. Right? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and you double-minded. He says, or us to draw near to Him. But the people of Israel rejected God. And because he, they rejected Him, what did He do? He rejected them, right? Uh, we were talking about that the other day with one of the ladies that helps me all the time and she was trying to understand this Isaiah, you know, and, and Jesus quotes it after in Matthew 11 and 12 that He talks about. He gives all these things and He talks to the Jewish people and basically they reject Him in Matthew 11 and 12. So in Matthew 13, he begins to do what? Speak in parables. Because why? Because they would not believe. And then they got to the place where they could not believe. And so Jesus literally, in a sense, he was hiding the word of God from them. Number one, because they were not willing to believe. And then number two, because he was, in a sense, stopping their judgment from being quite so bad. Because we'll talk about this one of the lessons as part of this. And we're... We'll talk more about this next week, but to whom much is given, much is required, right? Listen, the Israelites were given a lot because they didn't receive it. Then God turned his back on them. And the same thing, remember we read in Romans 1.18 at the end of the chapter, although they knew God, they didn't glorify God, nor were they thankful, but they did what? They worshiped the creature rather than the creator. And they worship the creeping things and the man and animals and four-footed animals and creeping things. And for this reason, God gave them up so they would believe the lie. And he gave them up and he gave them over and he gave them up. Why? Because they wouldn't believe. And that's the bottom line, folks, is God wants us to trust him and to believe him. We don't have to, but we won't, but, but he wants us to because he loves us, right? What's the old saying saying? If you set something free and it comes back, it loves you, or she or he loves you. And that's what God wants, is he wants people to serve him because they love him. Not because we have to, but because we get to and because we want to. And so, folks, we may sometimes think, well, them stupid Israelites. Or maybe when we were reading about the apostles, you know, and we see how they didn't understand, and we say, well, them dumb apostles. And, but then we look at our lives and we go, well, us dumb Martys and whoever we are because we do the same thing. You know, the Israelites had all these privileges and they were supposed to be God's mouthpiece. They were supposed to be telling everybody about Christ to come. And you know what? The church has done the same thing. We fell into the same hole and we're just as bad as what Israel was doing. We've not fulfilled our obligation. We had not told people about Christ. We haven't done what we were supposed to do and so many times we fall into sin and we fall away from God but you know what the good news is is there's forgiveness the Bible says that God has removed our sins as far as the east to the west and he's thrown them in the depths of the sea and he's trampled them under his feet and he throws them behind his back and he remembers them no more if we're believers and that's the good news and so I hope and pray 
that all of us today hope, know that we know that we know if we died today we'd go to heaven because Jesus died and John wrote the book and he says these things have I written that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5, 13. And then in the book of John he wrote these things have I written about the signs that Jesus did that you might believe and have life in his name. He said he did many other signs that these were written about that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and believe and you might have life in his name. Well, let's pray and let's close today. Father, we are so thankful that this is an unconditional promise, that this is an unconditional salvation. It's not based on anything we could, we could do. Because, Lord, as I read something yesterday that John MacArthur wrote, it said, if we could lose it, we would lose it. Because... It wouldn't take very long, maybe 10 minutes, 5 minutes, a minute, 30 seconds, maybe a couple of days before we sinned and we lost our salvation if it was based on what we did. But Lord, just as the Israelites had many privileges and many blessings, we do too. And we ask, Lord, that we would just realize how great and awesome you are and, and uh, how wonderful you are and that you just give us so much, Lord. And that we should be thankful and we should be just grateful and we should be telling everybody about what you did for us and what have done and are continuing to do and will do one day, one day when you take us to heaven. So, Father, just glorify yourself through our lives and we'll give you all the praise and the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Number 18, count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. Hi, I'm Marty McKenzie with His Love Ministries. Please help us reach out to those the world has forgotten. Everyone we minister to is locked up in some way, shape, or form. Those in the nursing home facilities are locked up in bodies that do not work in a wheelchair or in a bed. We minister to children and youth who are locked up because of behavioral problems. Some have told us we want to have a real family because their parents have lost or given up custody of them. Other kids are locked up because they've committed crimes. We also minister to those locked up at the jails and the prisons, to those locked up in addictions, to drugs, alcohol, depression, and suicidal thoughts, to those locked up in a variety of other things that keep them from becoming who Jesus wants them to be. He came to give us abundant life, joy, and set us free, and these people that we minister to are not free. Our desire is to show them whatever their background, no matter what they've done, to see how much God loves them. We seek to help them receive forgiveness and freedom from their sin in Jesus Christ. We minister in the local area of Savannah, Georgia, and surrounding Effingham and Chatham area. We have recently expanded our ministry to the Lexington and Columbia, South Carolina area. We do over 2,000 services every year. We hope and pray that you will support us in some way that so we can continue our mission. Go to hisloveministries.net and click on the Donate Now button or send it via regular mail to Post Office Box 1881, Lexington, South Carolina, 29071. We hope and pray that you will do that. Thank you and God bless you. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. John 832.